Good evening. You're listening to the Yena podcast. Today is the 22nd of March, and joining me this evening, we have the regular crew of Roman. Hello. And Mark. Hey. Rip Van Winkle, <laughs> sleeping peacefully on his mattress. <laughs> Had to be woken that- up. So, so for our audience, they, they'd be thinking, oh, that's about the mattress advert from a few weeks ago. But it's actually about the fact that I was late to this recording because I'd fallen asleep on my lovely internet mattress after work and uh, and forgotten to wake up in time to be here. So I'm, I'm a little bit, was it tardy I was called, I think, as soon as I turned up? Tardy to the party is what I called you. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, tardy and party don't rhyme up when you actually speak English. I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very teenagerish. That's oh, now here, here's a challenge I've been trying for a couple of days um, that our audience might be able to help with because we've got some technically minded people. I am trying to get an AI to write me a poem, but what I think is a funny poem. I want a poem that doesn't rhyme, but the words at the ends of each pair of lines are identical. They're what's called heteronyms, where the words look the same, but they're pronounced differently, like tear and tear and wind and wind. And I've been trying to get ChatGPT, which has now been upgraded to GPT-4, to write me this poem. And it just writes me a rhyming poem with different words at the end of each pair of lines. And then I say to it, define a heteronym for me and it does it and then i say give me a list of heteronyms and it gives me a great list of desert and dessert and all sorts and then i say brilliant now write me a poem that doesn't rhyme where the last word of each pair of lines uses one of those heteronyms and it just rhymes again it can't help itself it can't stop rhyming as soon as it hears poem or i looked up other names so apparently this was a free form poem or uh, there was another one i used free verse and no matter how i describe it and what i'm asking for it can't stop rhyming it just it won't can't help itself i mean i know limericks have a measure of rhyme but you know maybe try a limerick <laughs> mm, but you don't want a limerick do you no, I, I just no. want it like a poem. But I think, you know, if you had wind and wind, tear and tear, dove and dove, it would be funny because you'd look at it and at first glance, the poem would look like it would rhyme. But as soon as you started reading it, you'd hit that problem that none of those words would rhyme, even though they're spelled the same. And which well, unless, child are unless you... you actually made them rhyme because you didn't understand the English language. Well enough. <laughs> uh, which yeah. child are you trying to help avoid their homework with this project? <laughs> no, it, it's just one of those brain things that I had the other day. Wouldn't it be funny if these heteronyms were used for a poem? Um, it, it wrote me a great poem once about heteronyms, but then it just used words that rhymed at the end of the lines. Uh, Other times it, a lot of the time, it just writes about the sky and things like this, and it, it's all rhyming. But I haven't figured out yet how to get it to do it. It might just be beyond its capability at the moment. Hmm. Like its desire to rhyme is just too strong. I'm still confused about how it does that sort of thing. As in, if you tell it you want a poem, how does it know to make things rhyme? <sighs> yeah, I mean, how does it know? How does it understand? It doesn't, right? It's... No, no, sure. But I mean, that's what's missing in my understanding as to how those language models let it do that sort of thing to produce a poem. Yeah. Yeah. But it does well. It's never, it's, 
it's sometimes imperfect. It, sometimes it's not great, but you can see it definitely. It, it's mm. got an understanding that when it sees the word poem, it knows that, you know, only certain types of words finish lines. And I think that the, the reinforcement in this model of that, that, you know, the word, these pairs of words are at ends of lines in a poem is just too strong for it to break that for the nuance of me wanting a poem where the last word doesn't rhyme. Have you invented this new concept or is this actually a valid type of poem that uses heteronyms at, at the I'm, ends of the, the, the I'm phrases? not going to be arrogant enough to think that I'm the first person that's come up with this, but I've not done an extensive Google search and I haven't seen anything else from the little bit of Googling I have been doing. So well, quite possibly someone else has done it. But for me, this is a novel concept within my brain. Well, sure, sure. But maybe it doesn't technically fit the definition of a poem then. Well, as I said, I, I found the other word. I found like there was free verse or something. There's a couple of, hang on, let me oh, have a okay, quick look. Okay, okay. There's a couple of other phrases that are used for a type, type different types of poems that don't actually rhyme. Hmm. And so yeah, I've well, been there's quizzing no, there's it. Nothing, there's nothing to say that a poem has to rhyme. I mean, there's plenty of poetry that is just poetic language that doesn't have a rhyming structure to it. Yes, yes, but also there are specific names for certain types of prose that are the structure of poems. So there's there's one where apparently I think it's 10 syllables per line and it specifically doesn't rhyme and Shakespeare and a few other people have have written these, but they, you know, they deliberately don't rhyme. They just have the right measure. They have that rhythm like it's a poem, but they don't rhyme at the end. And when I've when I've tried that, and explained that to GPT-4, it's just, it's not getting it. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it, it rhymes, and then it rhymes again, and then I get frustrated like I would do with someone who's not listening to me, and then I'm like, it's a piece of software. I, I, I shouldn't be getting frustrated with this. Maybe I should walk you. away in exasperation. Maybe it's just trolling you. <laughs> It could be. And if it is, it's doing a really good job of it because I, I keep going back every few hours and thinking, what if I describe it this way? Maybe it'll understand it then. And again, understand is one of those very loaded words when we're talking about these AIs. So I haven't actually checked out the new GPT-4. So is that publicly available? Is that what you're using or are you still using GPT-3? Is it 3.5? Yeah, so Chat GPT apparently the other day was plugged into the GPT-4 engine, so it's moved across to GPT-4, oh, okay. and Bing supposedly is the other one that is using GPT-4 as well. So there's a couple of them that are using it now, so it's not too hard to get your hands on it. Hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've read about people using the API to build software to do um, interesting things. But, I mean, listening to the description of it, the thing that bothers me is how how much energy is used in all the supercomputing in order to be able to do this. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of it. And, you know, I imagine the machines they've got at the moment are maybe more legacy. They've got a whole bunch of graphics cards in, the NVIDIA graphics cards with a bunch of tensor cores. Um, and you end up, right. like like with mining rigs, you can end up with one machine that has like six or eight graphics cards in. And of course, they're not doing graphics workloads. They're doing these workloads that are using these specialized tensor cores. But there are uh, specialist cards out there. I think Google's made their own card 
their own hardware that's got just these tensor cores on that it's optimized for these AI workloads. IBM, I think, has just released a new, really interesting kind of fuzzier, less precise card so it can do more AI workloads because with this kind of workload, you don't care about it being precise and exact You because it, there's a fuzziness in it anyway. The fuzziness, if anything, can be in certain circumstances useful. So yeah, they've made they've made this like card that's just optimized for doing AI AI stuff really quickly. Mm. But it's still yeah. going to be a whole bunch of power, and presumably, you know, they're being given billions of dollars by Microsoft OpenAI. Presumably, that's hope, helping to keep the lights on in their data centers. But yeah, they're they're running a whole bunch of machines in order to service everybody's requests as quickly as they can. Yes. Well, speaking of graphics cards, I hear that one of our podcasters is uh, uh, lacking a graphics card. Well, I'm not lacking a graphics card. My husband is. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he's been playing. He came home from a, a trip overseas and put into the put on the Oculus 2 and was playing um, a, this new game, uh, Tambor. And yeah, he stopped playing for a little bit, uh, stepped away and poof. In a puff of smoke, there goes our graphics card. Oh, there's actual smoke, was there? Yeah, there was actual smoke. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, there's a name for that in IT. It's called the magic blue smoke. And there's an idea that every microchip gets magic smoke put in it. And once that smoke escapes, the chip never works again because the magic's gone. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we, we smelt the burning first is what we smelt down the hall. So, Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. So he's a little bit sad and he's been commandeering my my desktop. And right. I've had to and I've had to use the my my old desktop to do my PhD work, but hopefully either, you know, no no fingers crossed that insurance is going to come through despite our contents, but um Hmm. When you told me this story the other day, I was wondering whether it was going to be the same thing that had happened to Daniel Ryan on the committee. Mm. where um, he learned the hard way about having your VR headset and not covering the eyes when you're not using it, where, um, you know, the Fresnel lenses in there can concentrate light into a very small area. And he left oh. his out somewhere that the sunlight hit it. And mm. he's got little burn marks in the screens from where the sun was focused that much that it basically damaged it. No, um, but my father-in-law doesn't wear contacts. He wears glasses. And my husband's all about, oh, try this VR headset, try this VR headset. And this was with our Rift. And yeah, no, um, after my father-in-law used it, my husband put it on. He's like, oh, what are these little markings? Um, <sighs> scratches from the glasses. So um, oh. we were able to get like a particular, uh, we we're able to do something about that. I think we got a cover or something. I have to congratulate you, Mark, on the correct pronunciation of Fresnel Lens. Why, thank you. Were you expecting me to say a Fresnel lens? Yep. I've heard plenty of people say Fresnels. <laughs> That's understandable. I mean, if, if you don't even know that it is, I guess, French, and yes. you just see it as it is, Fresnel makes sense. Anyway, we didn't come here to talk about that. So uh, the two of you attended Parliament this week, didn't you? And you did the oral submission part of the Therapeutic Products Bill. You want to tell us about your experience? We 
did. And so as a background, and I, I think we might have talked about this a month ago or so, trying to outline the process. But for those that didn't hear that a month ago, when um, the government's drafting new laws, they go through a, a process which includes three readings in Parliament and some other bits and bobs. One of those bits and bobs is this consultation process where they not only accept written submissions that they read and consider, but also you get to orally present. You get to sit there. I mean, traditionally, you'd sit in front of MPs uh, during COVID. It went to Zoom and it looks like even now they're really favoring Zoom meetings as being the norm. So Bronwyn and I specifically chose a day when we could do in-person presentation. Um, so we went in yesterday on Tuesday and we got to sit in front of MPs. And for me, I was like, if we can do this in person, this is a lot better because, you know, we're sitting in the same room as MPs. There'll be some back and forward. And it's really good that you can you can be there with them. Um, in the end, it turned out that I think because of the wind yesterday, flights weren't landing in Wellington. And the MPs that were coming from out of town that had been at home did not end up in Wellington. So we ended up sitting in front of two MPs, uh, which given a, a select committee of 10 MPs, the fact that we were in front of just two of them was a little bit disappointing. I wasn't looking, obviously focusing on other things, but I'm I'm guessing the others were connected in via Zoom and watching through that. You could see the screens where it was all being Zoomed out to people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it was slightly disappointing. We only got to present live in front of two of them, but still really good that we're able to go to Parliament and go through that process and, um, and say what we wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, the, the process is interesting to me because in actually seeing it online, um, so I, I saw uh, you and Bronwyn uh, present, even even though I told you I wouldn't be watching because you were going yeah. to be nervous. You lied to um, me. You, you said you wouldn't watch. Well, it might have been, it might have been delayed a little bit. It might have been... <laughs> like, like half a second delay, therefore you weren't watching live. Is this yeah. what you're going to go for? Speed but, of light. But, but anyway, it, it was interesting because the, the camera angle sort of showed the people set behind waiting to present and in fact i spied you while the the previous presenter was presenting that was giving the submission um but you actually just get to see the i think the administrative people who are running the meeting you don't actually get to see a view of the mps who are there listening as far as i understand okay so right? there were there were two civil servants on the side as well. I think they've got people who operate Zoom. When Bronwyn and I presented last year, they seemed really competent. Like whatever their admins are doing, they've learned how to use Zoom really well. Um, yeah. So if they would either they were asleep on the job or they were choosing to focus on the civil servants and not on the MPs, maybe. I don't know. Mm, I don't know. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. But it's just that I didn't recognize the people um, that were there <laughs> as as MPs' names that I recognise, although maybe I'm just not switched in enough to the political happenings in our capital. I know where uh, my vote's going on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, having done the conversion therapy bill submission, um, oh, was, would it be a year or two ago now? It was quite a different process being there in person with the situation that we've had Um I don't know. Like, I mean, did this submission, did this bill actually have more submissions than the conversion therapy bill? I think the conversion therapy back then wasn't that the one that had more submissions than any other bill in like the entire history of Parliament. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I would be surprised. There's been a lot for this. Um, so one of my colleagues at work um, did a scrape of the submissions before the uh, consultation had even closed, the written submissions. Mm. And we haven't processed them yet, but we, we've got this raw data set that we can churn through. And back then it was over 10,000. It was a lot of submissions. And the fact that last week when the Society for Science-Based Healthcare did their submission, that they were only being given five minutes each, which we were given 10 minutes for our oral presentation, but it's basically been five minutes for people online. I mean, giving so little time suggests that they've got a lot to get through. Yeah. Mm. And, we, and we weren't asked um, as many, we, well, we weren't really asked any questions in our session. I don't think we've seen, we didn't see the MPs ask too many questions of the two or three submissions that we saw before we started versus say the conversion therapy bill. We were asked a lot of questions, but I wonder if maybe that's because, um, well, we had some motivated people on our, on the conversion therapy bill. Yeah, I, I, we did. We had Simon Bridges, didn't we, for the conversion therapy? Who had the really boring? He had the same question for everybody, which mm-hmm. is basically, what about the parents? And it, it didn't really change for for anyone. Um, but yeah, for this one, I don't know. It, it definitely felt it felt more rushed and less like we were being listened to than in any submissions I've done for the skeptics or the humanists in the past. Normally it feels more conversational and more like, you know, this is a, um, a a passing on of ideas. This felt more like they were just going through the routine. And Mm -hmm. I I hope if that is the case, that that's because they've got it in hand and, you know, the written written submissions have been well read and they've extracted a lot of useful information. I I don't know what's going on, but certainly, you know, as we said in our oral submission, we think it's a good bill. We think there are some places where it needs tightening and, and we're really hoping that they can make those tweaks that will make it even better not, end up with these loopholes that let um, alternative medicine practitioners make claims that they're not backing up with evidence. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out and whether, whether the rational voices are listened to. I mean, I, I saw a few other submissions um, sort of around the edges of, of yours and and the science-based healthcare submission. And yeah, there seem to be quite a few from pharmacy interests and also a organization that is responsible for overseeing the sale of natural health products. So they're kind of like a representing importers of that sort of product that gets sold direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what was interesting with that was looking at the, the two main classes of people and organizations that were talking, you ended up with the people who were pro alternative medicine. There's a lot of those, you know, we've mm. seen groups like um, Voices for Freedom promoting all their members sending in submission. So you had a bunch of people and, and practitioners as well as lay people who were uh, there to say alternative medicine should not be regulated at all. It should not be in the bill at all. Uh, It's natural. It's safe. Please let us sell what we like. Don't take away our ability to sell oats and things like that. So you had that side. And then on the other side, you had pharmaceutical companies who were making um, real medicines and are concerned about changing legislation and natural health products 
um, who, you know, they're interested in what the legislation means to them. And so even the kind of the very pro-sciencey end of that, their focus is not on the alternative medicine. That's really not on their radar. What they're interested in is making sure that their costs don't go up when they're trying to manufacture and import medicines. They don't want to see legislation that's more onerous than what they have currently, because that's going to affect their bottom line. But it was interesting with those two sides, of course, neither side is talking about, hang on a minute, alternative medicine doesn't work. It's nonsense. You shouldn't let them, you shouldn't have a list of allowable health claims for um, alternative health products when they don't do anything of use. And so mm. we're kind of, we're, we're really in that middle place where, you know, with people are all focused on their own interests are all focused in what, what do we need that's best for us to make money? Um, yeah. And there's nobody shouting actually what's best for the consumer, except for the skeptics and science-based healthcare. And I'd like to think there might be one or two other organizations, but there's not much of that consumer right stuff going on. It, it's all about everybody's bottom line that, you know, where their dollars coming from and how to protect that dollar. I also caught um, Daniel and Luke's uh, submission from the perspective of the science-based healthcare, um, and I thought they did a good job in presenting it. Um, certainly, they got asked some questions, um, and Daniel got asked to provide some evidence of harm of natural health products. So um, that's that's good to see if he can come up with that that list and get it back to them. Uh Already done. So, yeah, so for SBH, um, the presentation was good. So I, I had a, a decent hand in writing it because I'm a, a member of the Society for Science-Based Healthcare, but didn't want to present twice because, you know, it would look odd if I turned up for the skeptics and SBH. So Luke did a rewrite and, and he presented really well. I was very impressed mm. with how well Luke did. And yeah, because of the limited time, there was just that one question to Dan. Um Bronwyn, you said you know Sarah, who um, the MP who asked that question? Yes. Um, if it's Sarah Pallet, MP for Islam, she was my midwifery tutor. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a small world? Yeah, um, she was she was what we call a Kayako. So she was sort of my main mentor slash tutor in my second year. But she also taught the pharmacology course. And one of the things I say in my submission was one of the things that was one of the things that she would ta she taught us is that just because something is labeled as natural or purports to be natural doesn't mean it's safe. I found this interesting because when she asked the question to Daniel of you said that there can be harms from natural medicine, do you have any evidence to back this up? I thought she was being combative. I thought she was trying to defend alternative medicine. And then Bronwyn told me this and it was like, oh, maybe I read it wrong. Uh, Daniel, so we, we wrote the email back to her. It got sent off this morning and she came back pretty quickly today and she said um, something about how she had, you know, she saw for a long time that natural does not mean safe and it's really it's really good to see evidence that this is the case um and, so and, and also take it as evidence that my midwifery education is not full of woo uh, you know we are taught <laughs> we're taught science we are taught pharmacology we're taught bioscience we are taught the facts 
Bronwyn, as a midwife, do you or do you not have a dowsing crystal on a chain in order to be able to tell the gender of a baby? <laughs> did you or did you not give me said dowsing crystal there, Mark? <laughs> I did give it to you five minutes before we went in to speak to the select committee yesterday when I finally remembered that I had one for you. But please, please use it at work. Please find out whether they're going to have a boy or a girl by dangling it over the belly. Oh my God, I can only imagine. I, I have to. You know, we have to document all interactions we have with women. I can only imagine if somehow some terrible thing happens. I'm in front of the health and disability commissioner and I have to explain this. Mm, would, th- would that would that actually be grounds for complaint? If you pulled that out and said, I'm going to do this woo woo thing over you and uh, determine the, you the know, sex of your baby. Health consumers can and they have the right to complain about anything. Right. You know, anything if they if, if me doing the woo woo dowsing of and determining baby's gender <laughs> is upsetting or makes them feel that I'm not a safe practitioner. Absolutely. They can go make mm. the complaint. Yeah. Although if, and so they should. Uh, but conversely, if if you had a um a client or a patient, what do you call them? Clients or patients or um clients. Um, but but if if they if they actually ask you to perform this procedure, uh, and I mean, and you refuse because it was woo, would they well, be? Okay I, I, they? I would ref- I would refuse on the grounds that I am not a that's not within my scope of practice. Right. Okay. So I have protection. You've not been you've not been trained on how to correctly interpret the uh, the, the oh, sway of no, the pendulum. So- that's the other part of the first lessons that we learn in midwifery is that, yes, there are all these old wives tales about, you know, <laughs> determining gender and about baby movements and, you know, how some of them are, you know, some of them are benign. But, you know, when you think about it, if you're trying to douse a baby's gender, but you're working with a family that maybe maybe more inclined to engage in selective um, termination or selective mm, reduction. Sure. That's something that we have to consider. Same thing, you know, mm. telling people that, oh, you don't feel your baby, go have some sugar, go ha- eat something sugary or have a glass of water. Well, actually, that may not be the best advice. You may want them to actually come directly to the hospital and uh, have some monitoring. Sure. Torture that baby's right. You don't want to waste. Sometimes, you know, it's a matter of people just being women, just women and, you know, pregnant people just being so busy, they don't have that same connection to their bodies. So they don't really notice what baby's movements are. But sometimes mm. it's more serious. So you always want them to come in and, you know. Mm. So going back to the complaints to the uh, HDC, the Health and Disabilities um, Commissioner a second, I do have a spreadsheet somewhere I put together a while ago of all the complaints made to the HDC about alternative medicine providers. Um, And I should probably write an article about it at some point because it really is quite harrowing reading just how unethical some people can be and how often it happens with alternative medicine practitioners. And midwives definitely get a, uh, a, a little bit of a mention here and there. They I think some midwives can be quite alternative and maybe not not have an idea about how to behave well around I, their client. I won't deny that, you know, there are midwives who have that bent. I mean, just look at, you know, the parliamentary protests. We had midwives who were up there protesting against the vaccines. But we also have doctors. That's why we had the NZD SOS. It wasn't it, you know. There's, yeah. Yeah. It's, mm. it's And we had nurses who were up there saying, you know, the same anti-vaccination thing. It's just because you have a health degree or a degree and a good marks in a healthcare, um, in a healthcare degree or healthcare um, profession 
Um, that's no guarantee about what someone's real beliefs are. It just means, you know, you can do the basics of the job, which is I can take a blood pressure. I can do some temperature. I can prescribe some meds. Hmm. I can may, may, may or may not need to do, um, have diagnostic skills. That's what it is. So, uh, we don't have too much time left because we've got a great interview coming up with uh, Stuart Lansborough from the Psychic Challenge at Puzzling World in Wanaka. So we'll, we'll play that soon. Um, but also I just wanted to briefly mention that uh, the new radio station, online radio station called Reality Check Radio is now live. I had a brief listen last night and I was... Uh, uh, and listened to Rodney Hyde, who was interviewing somebody on Zoom. I listened to it for about two minutes, and that was about all I could stand, I think. Yes, but how they, was it? Uh, they have been – well, yeah, no, it, I don't think it's good. I, it's going to be interesting to see how long they can sustain this and how long they can sort of attract an audience if if they're just spouting all this sort of conspiracy theory kind of stuff. So um, was it well-produced? Was the audio quality good? Well, when I first tuned in, I thought, oh, that, that audio sounds pretty bad and echoey. And then I listened for a little bit longer and then I heard um, Rodney Hyde talking and it turns out that he was interviewing somebody on Zoom. So probably it was somebody in their uh, home office and and not with acoustic treatment on the wall and so on. So uh, that, I guess that's to be um, forgiven. Uh, you can't control the, the audio quality that your guest is going to give you. And just looking at their website, it's it's all full of uh, articles like the war on woke or uh, challenging progressive progressivism in New Zealand's culture wars and questioning climate change. So uh, progressivism, I'm, I'm going to move from there to progression. And what one of the things that's really interesting is the progression of some of the hosts on this, where I think originally at least a couple of these hosts will have been on Magic Talk. Um, or at least one that's in this chain I'm about to talk about. And Magic Talk, I mean, I used to speak on Magic Talk with Graham Hill back when it existed, and it felt like very much we were, and Graham most definitely was a bastion of common sense and, and rationalism with a lot of right-wing people and arguments being being played on there. I think, you know, they they had Voices for Freedom on Magic Talk Um a couple of times maybe, but that was, I mean, obviously that, um, that radio station died eventually. And then some of the people ended up being orphaned. Um, and it seems like some of them ended up on the platform, which is our fairly recent right wing platform. Um, and, it, what's really weird is, you know, some of these people, they, they end up getting kicked off the platform, which is quite right wing because they they were too extreme. And now they found their home with this new reality check radio. And it just makes me wonder, yeah, how right if, the, if this is the audience they're going for, if this is how extreme they've been pushed out to, how quickly is it going to turn like pretty awful? Um, because these people have, you know, they they've been filtered out from anything that's even slightly more mainstream for having odious views. It mm. really is scraping the bottom of the barrel to an extent. Yeah, I, I guess if you were to put these on a spectrum, you've got um, the platform and then further to the right of that is Reality Check Radio and then perhaps further, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether right is, right is the, even the correct term, but then you've got uh, 
um, counterspin media, which uh, <laughs> uh, flicking the needle all the way to the edge. <laughs> yeah, and and just for anybody that's worried, you know, we're talking politics, um, and certainly I I very much understand that if someone wants to be extremely right wing, if they want to say, if they want to be libertarian and believe in Ayn Rand's ideas, it's not being unskeptical. You know, skepticism doesn't say these are wrong political views, but I think there is a, an understandable idea that maybe you're not a nice person if you end up having views that seem to be up for oppressing a lot of people and just championing your own way of life to the exclusion of, you know, the the rich reality of different people's lives. Um, but at the same time, when we look at these channels, when we look at what the platform has been pushing, when we look at reality check radio and behind it, you, you know, you look at Voices for Freedom and the history of their newsletters and their actions, a lot of it is not evidence-based. A lot of it is pseudoscientific yeah. ideas. A lot of it it's conspiracy theory that very much these days seems to be tied in with this right wing thinking. The right wing thinking generally doesn't come by itself. It comes with a lot of bad ideas that even a 10 minute search for refuting evidence online will tell you are just nonsense ideas about, hey, Pua Pua is going to give our water to the Maoris and, and all this kind of nonsense. There's even homegrown. There's so many conspiracy theories that we've got over here that just they just don't stack up against the evidence it is it is amazing that the hosts that are on there um certainly some of them particularly uh say peter williams was uh, once on uh tvnz as as a mainstream broadcaster so it's kind of a shame that these people have sort of slipped down the rabbit hole and uh decided that this is where reality lies <laughs> But um, I, I saw a promotion for, uh, I just have to get this one in, I saw a promotion for Reality Check Radio before it was starting up, and, and they were, uh, I was riding my bike uh, at uh, Westgate, and there were people standing on the side of the road with big uh, placard signs with Reality Check Radio, and I, I I took great pleasure in riding past them at great speed and say, go home, conspiracy theorists. <laughs> Hopefully they heard me. I yelled it out as loud as I could. Look at that activism in action, and uh, and obviously nobody tried to attack you or anything. Uh, no, not in, not unless uh, not unless you consider the uh, the accident I had on my bike a couple of days ago when uh, somebody drove a, a van out in front of me. Oh dear! Oh, so maybe they were playing the long game. Then they ended up hiring a white van and following you round for days. <laughs> No, I don't think it was anything like that. But uh, yes, no, I, I survived to tell the tale, even if my front wheel of my bike is uh, is currently being repaired at the bike shop because it was so warped from the uh, little crash that I had. But is uh, your, yes, it is your bike like first. is your bike like your Tesla? Is this an electric bike? It is. It is an electric <laughs> bike. Yes. So yes, I was riding through an extremely busy intersection and. Um, it's a notoriously bad intersection. There's been many, many accidents there. And a guy was trying to turn right, which is difficult to do because you have to cross a lot of traffic that's that's actually got right of way. And somebody waved him on and he just pulled out, not looking to check that I was in the lane coming towards him. And uh, so I jammed on my brakes and yelled at him, but uh, couldn't stop in time before I uh, sort of crashed into the side of him, probably about 20 kilometers an hour, I suppose. 
But you had your helmet on. You weren't skeptical. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't come off. No, no, I did. No, I did not come off. And, but that is an interesting point. When I back in the nineties, when they first introduced the helmets law, I had a university lecturer who um, who was vehemently against helmets. We had an offer back in 2013 to have a speaker at the conference in Wellington back then about um, helmets and whether it made more sense to not enforce helmet wearing for cyclists. And the argument was that actually by making people wear helmets, a lot of people that would ride a bike normally won't do anymore. And that the Mm. overall damage to their health from not cycling um, is going to cost more for the government than the money that they save from not getting as many serious head injuries. And even (laughs) if the numbers do work out, my argument was, I'm not sure this works because um, you know, there's there's something between the difference between personal liability and your your direct choice to wear a helmet or not, and kind of more of a distributed national thing. Where, um, yeah, it, it felt like that you couldn't really weigh one up against the other fairly because they were quite different things. Mm. I'm just trying to think of what the philosophical concept is there. Um, is it ut- utilitarianism that that sort of does that weighing up of the greatest? greatest good and yeah i think it's, it's probably a bit of a flawed argument because yes is a very very different health outcomes from somebody smashing their head on the road and having brain damage compared to diffuse health effects from people not uh choosing to cycle because they had to wear a helmet so. yeah so i think between yeah. that that it seemed like it was there was some fundamental flaw there and the idea of someone being able to stretch that out to a 45-minute talk, I really had problems with. <laughs> I couldn't see how that could remain exciting for an audience for that long. <laughs> so it didn't end up happening. But if, if enough listeners are interested, I'm sure we could still see if we could find someone to talk about that. Do you think that person's moved on to um, criticizing mask wearing? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yes. All right. Uh, so um, I guess... We need to play Stuart's interview, uh, and so let's pretend we're doing that now. Hi, and, I'm Stuart uh, Lansborough, star of Puzzling World. <laughs> How's that? Uh, well, you're both British, but no, you don't sound anything like him. All uh, right. Is he British? Anyway. I never even noticed. Yeah, he definitely has an English accent. Okay. So with us today, we've got Stuart Lansborough, who uh, is a retired skeptic down in Wanaka, but for many years ran the uh, puzzling world in Wanaka. And part of that was a $100,000 psychic challenge. Have I, have I got that right, Stuart? Uh, of latter years, yes. But in the early days, it was $50,000. Uh, $100,000 today is really much the same as $50,000 in those days. Mm, so ha- how long did it run for? I'm not quite sure. Probably about 27 years, I think. Um, I can't You know, when you, when you start challenges, you don't write it down anywhere. And when you finish it, you don't really write it down anywhere. But around about 27,000 years. But I stopped it because <laughs> I'd had enough. I'd had enough challenges who'd failed. Um, and I did it for myself more than anybody else, and it proved to me that uh, psychics can't get it right, Mm. and I hope that uh, other people will see it that way too. 
Yeah. So maybe you can explain to the audience uh, exactly how the, your psychic challenge worked. Right. Um, the psychic challenge, uh, I created a, 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 a scroll and put in a cabinet in my puzzle centre in Puzzling World, Wanaka, and on it uh, described what the, the, the challenge was, but the middle of the scroll was cut out and hidden. On the middle of the scroll, it was a promissory note in those days for $50,000. So I hid it somewhere. Well, initially, it was a long way away. It was within five kilometers of Puzzling World, and any, any psychic had to find the location of that. Now, the psychic had to come to me, and they could spend half an hour with me uh, and ask me questions uh, about where it is and all that lot. And, of course, I wasn't allowed to speak it back. I, I did it through my mind, my brain, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing, too, is they also, I also got the, this, the psychics to turn around so they could not see me. In other words, body language. Um, and then um, they were allowed to spend, well, as long as they liked, uh, going anywhere they liked, looking for the scroll, or not the scroll, the uh, promissory note. Uh, when they finally admitted failure, which they all did, um, I then showed them where the promissory note was located, uh, thus proving it was there. Hmm. Uh, I could never prove that uh, I was thinking to them, but not one of them actually uh, accused me of not trying to do it. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's and then presumably you had to find a new location because otherwise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, the moment they'd gone, I would uh, find a new new location for it. Um, but I always I always put it uh, in a place that was easily easy for me to visualize. In other words, beside a. a it wasn't near water, or... was it? <laughs> Sorry. It wasn't near water. Oh, that, no. Um, well, actually, no, we don't have water around Puzzling World. We have, a, we have a water bore, but it was near a water bore one time. So it was. But uh, no, just... Of, of, course, of course, what I'm meaning there is that we, what we see with many psychics is uh, when they're looking for bodies or something, they say, oh, it'll be found near water. Oh, I know uh, that. I realise that. But also, I never put it in the middle of a lawn because, of course, in the middle of a lawn, one piece of grass looks like another. And yes. Mm, okay. okay. So it sounds like you put a lot of thought into this challenge before you even started. Um, I mean, things like showing showing people after um, they failed the challenge where it is, you know, making sure they can't come back to you and say, oh, I don't believe it actually exists. Um, it seems like a, a good thing just to head off any problems. Um, how long did it take you to think of this? How long were you mulling it over before you finally decided to put your money where your mouth was, so to say. Goodness me, you're asking me to think back nearly 30 years now. Um, <laughs> goodness me. Look, I, I, I came from uh, atheists and sceptical parents uh, a long time ago, and so I was brought up with a sceptical mind, and I have never believed in any of these things that they, they believe in. Look, I don't know how long it took me to think about it, but uh, uh, when it came, it came. Um, one thing I forgot to mention to you, too, was that uh, uh, when people accept this challenge, they have to pay me $1,000. Mm. 
This is to prove that they are really serious about it and to stop people just taking guesses. I mean, in Puzzling World, because I had the, uh, the, the challenge on, a, on the wall there, uh, I could have hundreds of people a day think, well, I might just try this. I, I've got no ability, but I'll just try it and uh, see if I'm lucky. And I could spend all day long just doing these other people. When in fact, in, in the end, I had, over the years, I had seven serious psychics who think that they can do it, and they did offer $1,000. Now, I never kept it because uh, that wasn't the point. The point was just to, to get very few people who think they can do it. Um, mm. So I gave so it you, back to them. Right. Okay. So you took the money and then you gave it back. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that sounds like another really good idea, you know, just to make sure there aren't a bunch of time wasters. I know having talked to people that looked after the James Randi million dollar challenge, um, apparently they have a lot of time wasters, a lot of people who are very tenacious and won't take no for an answer. And they were spending a lot of time just wasting their time trying to argue over testing protocols. Whereas this one, it's there's no different protocols. What you've said is basically, you know, there is there is one challenge. You either pass or you fail. I think that's really good. The thing I'm interested in, who were these seven people who actually were willing to put up a thousand dollars? Can you describe any of them to us? I'm fascinated in in who took the risk. Sure, sure can. Um to be precise, I'm not sure it was seven or eight. My memory fails me now, or even eight and a half. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll come to that. Okay. <laughs> I'll come to that. But I mean, I think two or three of them were just standard um, psychics, and uh, they all failed. Uh, another one was a dowser, a diviner, and he went all over the place with his rods going up and down and never actually found it. Um, I'm looking at my list now. To um, and then there was a uh, a keen Auckland woman um, who phoned me up one day and said, "Could I do it over the phone?" And I said, "Well, no, not really, because if you got it right, and I, I would probably you you could accuse me of saying no, and then I can't prove to you where there's, there's the note is." So about a year later, anyhow, she came down uh, with a friend to Wanaka and she said, can I do the challenge now? And I said, well, sure. And um, so she did the challenge. She failed, would you believe? Um, <laughs> and uh, so I had to show her where the promissory note was. So around about 50 meters from uh, Puzzling World there, it was my house. And in it was my new wife of two years um, and so I took the two women up to the house and into the house and I introduced them to my wife. And I said to my wife, I've got to show them where, where the promissory note is. And my wife looked very indignant and she said, it's not in the house. I've cleaned every square inch of the house, so it can't be here. So I took all three of the women up to our toilet and I lifted off the lid of the water cistern and here inside for two years has been a bottle floating up and down. And inside that bottle was the, the, the promissory note. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you had some fun placing it. That's great. Oh, that wasn't it. Now, as I said to you, uh, I mean, another time I actually had in a geodesic greenhouse. So as I said to you, uh, I put it in places that was easy to visualize because I tried mm. to help them because I didn't think they could win. And by the way, so did 
did did any of them say, oh, yes, I sort of thought that it might be a place like that, but I couldn't quite get it? Not at all, no. Not, <laughs> none of them, no nowhere near. Uh, another one was actually a very devout Christian, and they came oh. to see me and they, they said, well, look, um, I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to pray to God that he helps me with this. Uh, it didn't, he didn't come back next day. Maybe God said no. <laughs> well, he's, he's got other things to do. And uh, another one actually was, well, I wasn't actually there at the time, but uh, the, the, the psychic person asked my son-in-law, who was running the business at that time and still is, and asked if he could do the challenge. And my son-in-law said, well, you can't because uh, Stuart Land was not here and I have absolutely no idea where the, the promissory note is. Um, but the psychic said, well, look, I've just done a course. I'm an Israeli. I've done a course on psychics in Israel, and I, I think I can do it without Stuart Lansborough. So um, my son-in-law said, well, okay, but I won't charge you $1,000. I'll charge you $500. Um, and so the psychic went totally to the wrong place, not that my son-in-law knew it, and couldn't find it. And so failed in that respect there. But, but where they looked was nowhere near um, where I put the promissory note. Right. And then there was one other challenger, which I have to tell you about. Um, by the way, that last one about uh, the $500 on my son-in-law, when I said there was eight and a half challengers, I put that as half a challenge because it wasn't a real challenge there. But there was another challenge that I didn't accept uh, I was in the cafe of our puzzling world one day and a woman came up to me, a nice, rather pretty woman, actually, uh, with a child about four or five years old beside her. And she said, I want to do the challenge. And I said, sure. And I told her uh, the, the rules. And then she said, what you've got to do is you've got to put your hands on my bare breasts. <laughs> I got a smile there, <laughs> uh, and uh, I gulped, and I, and instantly I knew I'd have to refuse the challenge, and God. so I refused it. But uh, I'd love to know if it works, <laughs> or what works actually. <laughs> so wow, well, I, that's person. a new one. That's a new one. I can't say I've ever heard of any psychics uh, using that sort of mechanism. Well, normally, too, but it could have been a con. <laughs> well, yeah. you've got more than $10,000 that way, you know. It's not been the <laughs> challenge. It's about the uh, core challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so, so that's, um, apart from that, I've had lots of people who um, just talked to me in, in our cafe in Puzzling World where the challenge was, and they've made silly guesses, and I said, well, I can't tell you because – uh, that's all of them that I can really say are really serious. Nice. Um, one question I've got is just the wider thing of puzzling world like this. This psychic challenge is obviously quite a skeptical thing, but we we had a dinner, a skeptics dinner at our conference in um, when we were in Queenstown a few years ago at Puzzling World. And it was really nice to be able to wander around the building and see all the illusions and puzzles that are there. And uh, it, I've been thinking that this is, it feels like the whole place is, it's kind of skeptically themed in a way. You know, to me, I feel like illusions are, are a way of showing people that their mind is not infallible, that people can't trust what they see all the times. And, you know, this is a really important lesson for skeptics that basically you, you can't always 
assume that what your brain thinks is reality. Um, and uh, what I thought about Puzzling World, that it's really good, that it's a nice, simple way of showing people your brain isn't trustworthy. It, was that like a motivation for Puzzling World? How did you come out with it in the first place? I think you're dead right with that. Um, I, As I've mentioned before, I'm quite sceptical about a whole lot of things there. And I built the business of Puzzling World up to be a strange sort of place, as you say, with illusions and uh, to make people's minds think. When I decided to go ahead with this challenge, I realized that there could hardly be a better place in New Zealand or the world even to do this challenge and, uh, and it's been a wonderful place for it. Uh, the funny thing is that when I've traveled around the country and, and actually met people and, and they realized I came from Puzzling World, almost invariably, one of the first things they say about the place is the, is the psychic challenge. So it shows you how many people have read the, the, and read the scroll cabinet and um, remembered it. We know that there are some fairly prominent psychics in New Zealand um, and... Uh, they did a TV show once called Sensing Murder. Have any of them actually participated in your psychic challenge? Well, I have to correct you, first of all. They're prominent psychics. They're not psychics. They think they are. <laughs> um, Indeed. Alleged yeah. psychics. But um, Kelvin Crookshank, I'm sure most New Zealanders know him. Um, he actually came to Wanaka during the time I had this psychic challenge there, but he did a show in the town hall, as he did in many town halls around the country. He pulled in the people, amazing number of people, at $75 a person, mm-hmm. um, which he must have made a fortune from. And my wife and I had to go and see him, even we, though we hated the thought of paying $75 each to, to him. But we just wanted to see what it was all about. So we uh, we paid. We went there. We sat in the middle of the audience. We didn't want to stand out or be chosen. We just want to observe. Um, and, of course, a lot of the audience uh, saw me. And being local people, they mostly knew about my psychic challenge. But uh, the show started and Kelvin came out and did some not very funny jokes before he started. And the first thing he did, he said, could you please give a mic to that woman in the middle of the audience dressed in red with curly hair? And that happened to be my wife. Uh, And we gulped, how on earth does he know about us? He must know we're from Puzzling World. She had the mic for probably about half an hour or more without any conversation. Uh, And he went to a whole lot of other people and did so appallingly badly. It was unbelievable how many he got wrong. Um, Until about halfway through the show, he finally came back to my wife and he asked her four questions and he got them all wrong. Totally, totally wrong. Of course, he was a bit put out by this. And so he said, uh, can you give the microphone to the man beside you, which happened to be me, uh, her (laughs) husband. And there was a murmur went right through the audience because, of course, they all knew who I was. And this was 
was it David and Goliath or the other way around? I'm not sure. And anyhow, he asked me for questions and he got one right. However, that question or the statement was that, uh, oh, your parents are dead, aren't they? And I said, <laughs> yes, they are. They'd be about 100 years of age now. Um, so I don't really regard that as a hit. Um, but anyhow, he said, right, that's it. Um, we'll have a break now. And he stormed off the stage, not very happy. And when he came back on again, he looked straight at me and said, I know who you are. You're that man from the puzzle place. Uh, and then he ignored me. And then he carried on and got a whole lot more people with very poor hits as far as I'm concerned there. And finally, right at the end, he said, could you hand the mic to that woman in red uh, with the curly hair at the back? He got it all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was surprising because he got everything wrong everywhere else there. Um, but then I suddenly remembered that just before the show started, there was a guy on the balcony at the top there standing there, and he was looking very hard at my wife uh, as if he was trying to see if she's the right person. He, he didn't see me beside her. He was so concentrating on my wife. Then he must have told Kelvin she is the one to pick on, the, one, the woman with the curly hair and the red top. But what he did wrong was under the balcony beneath him was only it was the second woman with curly hair and red top so he must have done a hot reading with her outside he must have come in looked for her and tried to tell kelvin where the woman was and got the wrong woman um, <laughs> and so by the time he did the reading for this woman at the back there he got four of them correct but he the questions were so awful like um, you've had a, a spot cut off the side of your nose, haven't you? And you have a dangly dog uh, hanging from the, your car on the windscreen there. Silly little things like that, which goodness knows that's not what a person comes to a psychic show to, to hear about. That was the show over. And he got an, a tremendous applause from the audience. I don't know why. I almost got booed out. I felt quite um, threatened at times. People turn around in the break there and turn around to me and said, why are you here? Uh, and things you, like you're that. You were putting them off, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, don't know about that, but... I don't. I've often been told, have I been to psychics to see if they uh, see how they work? And if you haven't been there, you don't know. So mm. we went to this one here and we certainly found out we still didn't believe in him. But then the people around us were saying, well, you shouldn't be here. I think real life psychic readings can be pretty underwhelming. I know when you watch on TV, obviously, there's a lot of selective editing for people like John Edward, where you see the hits, you won't see the misses. But I've been to a few psychic events. Spiritualist churches are a good way to go and get and see psychic readings for free. And it's amazing just how often they get it wrong. I remember one, I was at a spiritualist church and I had a reading for myself. Everything was amiss. Things like, um, oh, you do a lot of writing. And this was before the Skeptics newsletter. So I was pretty much writing nothing. But what this psychic did that was really impressive, and I, I, I kind of was, you know, I was like, oh, okay, you, you've done a clever thing there, is every time he had a miss, he would follow it up by saying, you know, oh, you're, you do a lot of this. And I would say, no. He said, oh, 
you will be. It's in your future. Yes. And it was like, okay, that that's clever. I like that. But but it would have been much better for Calvin if he'd actually got the right woman halfway through the show rather than right at the end. Uh, because I, I just don't know, understand how people can go to a show and and 95% of the time he got everything wrong. And the only things he got right were obvious things like my parents being dead at the 100 years of age. I mean, You'd have to be stupid if you thought something different to that. Mm. I, uh, I guess people are people are showing up because they want some sort of validation for their beliefs that there yeah. is an afterlife and that we're going to continue on and and people can actually talk to the dead and and make contact with them and uh, and and not seeing that I guess is um, a disappointment. That thing that he got right at the end that when he finally found the right woman uh, that was obviously they're going to me- remember the hits and forget all those misses and. And uh, he's going to come out uh, having a, a positive reputation from that, I guess. Yeah, anyhow, that was that show. And another thing you might want to uh, hear about was um, I actually decided to challenge the psychics of sensing murder. And so what I did, I sent a message to sensing murder and I offered to pay $300,000, not that I had $300,000, but uh, uh $100,000 for each of the two psychics that were on at the time, plus $100,000 for the director, if they got it right, uh, they found my promissory note. Um, and uh, curious enough, uh, I got a message saying they couldn't be bothered to do something like this. But mm-hmm. wouldn't it have been a, a newsworthy story if they had actually succeeded? Because I don't think that on the how many programs, 30 or so programs they did of sensing murder, I don't think they got one single one right. No, no. Although we did, um, we had Sue Nicholson come and speak at one of our conferences and she told our skeptical audience that she did get one of them right, that she did figure out a murderer. And it was, I think, a day after that, because we had the local media turn up and um, film it and, and put it on the news that evening. But we had the family to uh, phone me up a day, I think, later, um, just asking what the heck was going on? Why did we have this psychic that was claiming that their family member's murder apparently had been solved by the psychic when she was talking nonsense? And I had to explain to this family member that no, we were skeptics. We absolutely did not believe in Sue Nicholson. Yeah. Um, and I, I contacted the media and got the family on TV. And the family very publicly said that Sue Nicholson was full of crap and she didn't do anything of use. And in actual fact, if she was doing anything, she was doing damage. And it was really nice to get that happening because these psychics, they really do need exposing more often because they they really leech from people. I mean, taking their money, feeding off their emotions, it, it the whole career choice that these people are making is horrible. I totally agree with you there. I was really, really nervous about uh, when I started the challenge because I was so I was a complete skeptic. But it's just amazing how everybody probably could feel nervous in this sort of situation because uh, they might either get it luck by an incredible chance or they might be psychic and I might be wrong. There is always that possibility, isn't there? Um, no matter how how unlikely. Um, there's always a very small possibility that that something isn't how we think it is. Mm. One of the things that they did with the JREF challenge was that they sort of had two layers to it, that you had to go through an initial test first and then you had to pass a, a more uh, challenging test. But I guess for yours, 
if some psychic had somehow managed to get it by chance, then that would have been game over for you, I guess. You would have had to pay that money. But, but I think as you explained to me earlier, when you moved the the, the radius of the uh, promissory note down to a smaller a smaller distance puzzling world, you managed to sort of um, have two of them. So that sort of provided a bit more of a uh, insurance mm-hmm. against somebody finding it by chance. Yeah, well, of course, um, when I told people that I divided the promissory, promissory note into two rather than just having one, uh, they, um, quite, a number of, quite a number of people sort of felt that it must be too hard for the psychics to find two. And I said, well, look, surely if they're able to find one, they must be able to find two. Presumably none of them were able to even find one. Not in this near, uh, how do I say it, not, at, not near at all. Not a lot of the um, customers sort of uh, said, oh, they, they, they could nearly get it. But nearly, nearly isn't good enough. Now, I so, just want to ask, do you ever ha- have you ever had anyone who ever, ever cheated? You know, did you ever find anyone who's sort of trying to sneak around the property, trying to case the joint before they... Look, it, there's out? absolutely no way they could cheat it in the way I had it set up. <clears throat> the only way they could cheat it, which would be incredibly uh, uh, tiny, would be for them to stand around after a challenge had been done and wait for me to go and relocate the, the promissory note somewhere else. But it could be a week later, and I could have done it at night time or any time of the day. So that's the only weak link of the whole thing. But, but even, if, even if, you know, your fake psychics got it wrong, you know, somebody could still just sort of be hanging around the property, <laughs> asking questions, asking leading were you, questions. Were you looking over your shoulder when you uh, were moving it? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But see, the thing was, I didn't even want my wife to see where it's going because my, my feeling was that the more people who knew where it was, the weaker the challenge was. Because uh, they're all giving out that uh, psychic thoughts of where the location is so that the psychics can pick up on it. Well, I think no. few people, <laughs> people know exactly how easy it is for for psychics to to hot read or cold read or Indeed, like yeah. just watch people and, and you can give it away by a little tick of your eye or, or eyebrow. So you, you talked a few minutes ago about how the, the rules changed um, maybe partway through from a large radius and a single note to a very small radius and two notes. Was there any maths involved in figuring out the probabilities for this and figuring out, you know, the two notes and 100 meters works? Or were you just kind of guesstimating the likelihood of someone figuring it out by chance? No, there wasn't. Well, perhaps in the last move, yes, but... When I first started, I had no idea what distance away from the um, puzzling world I should locate the promissory notes. Um, And I I did it at five kilometres. Now, five kilometres is a big area uh, when you think about it. Why can't a a psychic uh, locate the promissory note in five kilometres? They should be able to do that. They should be able to do it in 100 kilometres. Anyhow, after the... The first psychic failed. I got a little bit more confidence, I suppose you could call it that. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, I made it 200 metres radius. Um, that's quite a big area still. Uh, and I had one promissory note hidden somewhere within that area. When I decided to put it up to $100,000 from $50,000, the, the reward, uh, I decided to reduce it down to 
100 metres, so it's making it easier for more. But that is when I divided the promissory note into two halves and located them in different places, um, each within 200 metres. Nobody got it. I think I had two challenges. Two challenges did it uh, on the... And so do you think the challenges were trying to do it genuinely to win the money or were they trying to do it for the publicity of I challenged Stuart Lansborough and and won? I don't know. Really don't know. They they were serious, so serious about it. Mm. I have to believe perhaps that they wanted to prove that I was wrong. Here was me, sort of a sceptic, offering $100,000. Well, I'm not sure if the money was really relevant to it. They just wanted mm. to beat me on the challenge. I'm sure $100,000 would have helped them anyhow. Yeah, they, they, they were obviously confident in their abilities and uh, I'm, didn't, I'm didn't sure pan they, out. They were. They were so confident, and yet they were so magnanimous in their defeat. They um, very nice, happy, and, and just saying, oh, I can't do it all the time, which is a good mm-hmm. one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the only one who didn't do it for money, of course, was uh, Calvin Crookshank, and he didn't do it full stop because I suppose it wasn't enough money for him. <laughs> yeah. Or couldn't suffer the reputational loss of actually failing. Well, obviously. <laughs> See, it seemed like there's always some excuse with psychics, either a psych, uh, an excuse not to take the challenge at all or an excuse when they failed the challenge as to why it didn't work. And I've, I've seen great videos. Um, there's, a, there's a video that was done in the UK testing a bunch of dowsers where none of them managed to complete the challenge of finding a bucket that had water in it. Um, but afterwards, they were all interviewed and most of them would have some kind of excuse as to why it didn't work you know the environment wasn't quite right or they hadn't got enough sleep the night before there was always some reason why they failed on the day but you could see their brain was processing i need to square the fact that i failed with the fact that i think i have psychic powers and i need to be able to believe both of these at the same time Mm. yes i haven't seen that one but i do remember seeing the uh, the one in Australia, uh, I think it was in a tennis court and lots of bottles of, was it water or something? Yes, uh, for, for dowsers. This was for dowsers and lots of bottles of half of, of water and lots of bottles were empty and the dowsers had to go and find which ones had water in them and they failed miserably. You probably remember that one, do you? No? I, th- I think there was there was one that was organised by Dick Smith. Um, oh, that's correct. Yes, that's the one. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so Buzzing World is still in operation, but you're retired now, and uh, we understand that the psychic challenge has now ended. Yes, so the Puzzling World is going well um, after COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, did appallingly badly during COVID, as all tourist attractions and places did. I have retired about, completely retired about four years ago. My two daughters have taken over the business there. Um, and I retired the the psychic challenge at the same time. So I don't want to be involved with it anymore. I'm sure I've, I've proved to myself, if not everybody else, that it doesn't work. Well, the uh, the New Zealand sceptics are about to announce at some point soon uh, that we will have our own challenge. Do, do you want to give us some details on that, Mark? Um, yeah, absolutely. So we we have thought long and hard for quite a few years about this. Um, 
And we've, we've been looking at a way we can run a challenge without it being too onerous for us. We don't want to be bogged down by having to argue with a lot of people who are just time wasters. So the way we think that we can do this um, is basically by making an invite only challenge. And I think the reason for this, probably a lot like um, with your challenge, Stuart, is it's nice to be able to say to the psychics, look, put up or shut up. Um, if you're claiming to be able to do something, prove it. We've got a decent test where we can test you. Um, if you really want the world to know that you can actually do something otherworldly, just come and take the test. So this this is what we're after. We want to be able to say when the media come to us, um, when we're asked for um, our opinions on something, that we can say, actually, we open this challenge to them. We're willing to work with this psychic. We're willing to work with this dowser, this ghost hunter. And we're willing to come up with a protocol where we can test your ability and if you can prove to us and an independent judge that we will agree to that you're able to do this thing then you win a hundred thousand dollars so i'm really looking forward to finally getting this one out the door and uh, and offering it um and i'm hoping that the invite only thing means that we're not we're not going to be a society whose sole role is doing paperwork for this challenge because that would not be a good result for us. I have to ask you, where are you going to get the $100,000 from if they win? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think it. I think it's right that we couldn't offer $100,000 if we didn't have it, right? This would not be oh, good. Okay. So we, we do have some money. The skeptics over the years have put a little bit of money aside, not enough to cover a $100,000 challenge, but we will be covering half of it. And um, a similarly minded organization in New Zealand, the Association of Rationalists and Humanists, they have been willing to put up the other $50,000. So between oh, the two organizations, we can cover this. We do have the funds for it. That's the thing. But it's interesting what you said earlier, because as I've been preparing this challenge and, you know, talking to people about it, there is that tiny seed of doubt. Um, there is that little thing of, OK, so we need to be prepared for the eventuality that someone wins this. And to me, it was more the case of, as Bronwyn was saying earlier, fraud. Um, if someone outwits us, if someone figures out a really clever way of faking having an otherworldly power, maybe we're going to end up losing this money. But that that will be on us because we didn't design the testing protocol yeah. properly. But it's still a possibility we have to consider and how we manage that. Yes, well, I, I, I must admit, when I started this challenge, I was nervous too about it. But I was, I think I was nervous that they actually could have psychic abilities, even though I was 100% sure nobody could have. As I said earlier on, I think it might be something inbuilt into our nature to, to actually believe in spiritual things or psychic things or whatever. Um, it, it took two or three uh, challenges before I got over that. Yeah, it certainly was a, a brave move back in 1974. There was a lot of uh, sceptical thought around at that time. Maybe it, that's it just my historical bias. Yeah, it shouldn't be brave because I was 100% sceptical about it. But uh, in, in retrospect, I think it was. <laughs> mm. Now, Craig introduced you as a retired skeptic. Now, that clearly can't be true. You're not retiring from skepticism or from being a skeptic, um, but you're just moving on to a different stage. Um, can you give us an idea about uh, what's next? For well, yes, I, I agree. When I heard about the retired uh, skeptic, 
Um, I let that go because I am still 100% skeptical about what most... Well, you're a, you're a skeptic, but you're retired. I'm retired from my challenge, from the, the, the psychic challenge, and uh, no longer do I have to worry about anybody challenging me and me having to put up $100,000. I have the $100,000 now, so if they wanted to do it, they could win, but uh, that doesn't matter now. <laughs> but, uh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, thank you very much, uh, for, for that, Stuart, and um, and we look forward to the launch of our own challenge and uh, hopefully uh, finding some psychics to actually take it on. But oh, who knows? So I'm predicting brave. that won't. You're awfully brave. <laughs> oh, and I, I have to say thank you for your years of service to scepticism. I mean, offering that challenge for so long and, you know, just just showing that the psychics are frauds um in that way that very public way i think was an amazing thing to do so thank you for um for taking the risk and doing that for new zealand and thank you for that i just wish that i could have afforded a million dollars like randy uh but when i offered the first fifty thousand dollars there wasn't fifty thousand dollars there so that um <laughs> was brave but uh oh i've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the reaction of people to it um, even now, even though I've finished the challenge in the cafe um, of Puzzling World, we still have a whole wall which um, describes the psychic challenge and, and a lot about it. And uh, so it's still ongoing in that respect. Mm, so you're still providing some sort of public education to, to show that psychics are frauds, even though they can no longer do the challenge. hope so. Yes, yes, mm. yes. All right. Thank you, Stuart. Great talking to you. It's my pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for all the work you people are doing. We uh, just need to talk about um, what's coming up in the membership corner side of things. Yes, there we go. Um, so this week on Friday at the usual time, 6 p.m., we have Skeptics in the Pub for Wellington, our regular meetup. At the inside the lobby lounge at the Intercontinental Hotel, so do not go to Two Gray, which is next door. You get to join a lovely group of Wellington skeptics, but not me this week. I'm heading off to a wedding, um, but I will be online for Skeptics in Cyberspace next Friday, which will also be at 6 p.m. But we will um, have the links up on the meetup page. Toot sweet. And Mark, do we have an activism meeting next week? We do. So next week on Thursday at the Falcon Brewer, we have Skeptical Activism. And we talked earlier about Daniel Ryan sending that email to um, an MP, um, just letting her know about the damage that um, natural health products can do. Part of what he did collating the information for that was go through Give a Little. And look, we've, we've tried tackling Give a Little before because they let people raise money for alternative treatments. But he specifically looked at people that had created campaigns uh, where they were saying, I'm no longer going to use conventional medicine for my cancer. I'm moving to alternative treatments and I'm fundraising for it. And how a lot of those campaigns you see run for a while and then suddenly go quiet because the person in question has sadly died from their reliance on alternative medicine. So he's very enthused about that at the moment. So I think next week we're going to look at what's our next step, having written to them a couple of times and explained our concerns. Is there a more active step we can do in order to be able to tackle, give a little allowing their platform to be used 
basically to to mess people's lives up because uh you know we understand that these people are victims but that they seem to be you know picked on by people who are not victims the the practitioners the people who are selling these products very much are taking advantage of this and taking advantage of give a little give a little you know in the end is helping to put money in shyster's pockets there are these con artists who are selling treatments that don't work who are making money out of give a little and give a little really don't seem to care about this so we're trying to figure out how do we make them care so if you come along next thursday and have any great ideas on how to get it through to give a little that this is unethical and actually from what we read of their terms and conditions it even looks like it's against their t's and c's we'd love we'd love any ideas that people have because it's something where we'd really like give a little to behave better on this one Mm. i wonder it's probably a big stretch but would the therapeutic products bill and the allowable claims that natural health products will be able to make would that be stretched to cover claims that are made and give a little promotions to say this is what we're going to do with the money nope the government the government won't even doesn't even want to stretch it to homeopathy so they're they're not (laughs) going to uh, stretch it as far as like as i said victims making claims about what their practitioners have have promised them on a give a little page i don't think that's going to happen in a million years (laughs) there ought to be a law (laughs) <laughs> the anti-quackery act we really just need to bring that back i think quackery in all its forms should be outlawed mm-hmm. yes indeed and of course we will have the auckland skeptics in the pub at the dice end of fork on the 4th of april uh, which is uh the the week before easter and uh, then religious folk among us who celebrate easter and then on Thursday, April 13th at 6 p.m. at Umbrellos Kitchen and Bar will be the Dunedin Skeptics in the Pub. Um, and I think may, and I think uh, we have a couple of conference organizers in the Dunedin Skeptics in the Pub. So if you have any ideas, uh, Dunedin residents, about what you want to see, who you want to come visit your lovely city, uh, go mm. bug Josh. Um, that's that's a good point because we have decided on the dates for the conference. It's going to be on the 24th to the 26th of November. So it's the last weekend in November in Dunedin. Uh, we're currently figuring out where it's going to be exactly, but uh, there's a, a few venues that we've got under consideration. Awesome. Oh, I've never been to Dunedin. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, and one more potential event that um, didn't happen and, and may still happen, no, will happen later, is Palmerston North Skeptics in the Pub. We were going to um, create an event and we had talked about it here. It was going to be just after my colonic irrigation, but sadly, my colonic has been postponed um, because the machine broke. And I'm glad they didn't try it on me in a broke condition because that wouldn't be nice. Well, um, I wonder if uh, did smoke come out? <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't the story that she has had a backup part in transit or on order for a long, long time uh, in case this event happened? And just before Mark's colonic, it somehow, and I'm doing air quotes here, happened. <laughs> the machine broke. So I don't know. Maybe yeah, it, a little bit of Googling. 
I, I reckon it seemed a little bit too convenient, didn't it? That it broke just before I was getting my colonic. But I have I, been told I can now rebook. So I need to figure out with um, the people that are coming to hold my hand figuratively um, when they're available on a weekend so that we can rebook. And when we do, we will we will make sure that we get Matthew Willie to create a Skeptics in the Pub event for that evening. Mm-hmm. I reckon it's your sceptical energy is interfered with the workings of the machine. <laughs> Well, we should be able to measure that and uh, prove ourselves <laughs> wrong and put ourselves out of a job. Very good. Okay. Are we? I think we're done. Sure. You've got nothing else to talk about because you're very talkative. <laughs> I've talking, spoken enough. And uh, the interview with Stuart was very interesting. So, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. It was really good to talk to Stuart and uh, really happy that we're going to be able to carry on his legacy by offering some kind of prize to a lot of the people that are that are pushing nonsense in this country. All right. You have been listening to the Year Now podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can contact us by sending us an email to news at skeptics.nz. We will see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Sayonara. Bye.